Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Open Floor. I'm Andrew Sharp, and on the other line, Ben Golliver. What's up, man? Not too much, Andrew. I'm ready to do it. I've thought about it. I've made sure I'm not speaking out of anger or frustration. I've really weighed this. I'm okay. ready to go ahead and criticize our guy, Lonzo Ball. Now, in terms wow. of... I know. In terms of the background, though, when we look at the overall podcast, Open Floor as a whole, we kind of have two seminal moments. Now, the first moment was when we met in Toronto. You remembered this. I didn't. It was because I blew you off. I feel bad about it. I was glad (laughs) that you cherished that memory. That was one seminal moment. But I view the real beginning of the Open Floor podcast, the real bond was that LeBronzo game at Summer League where you and I were sitting baseline watching LeBron, watch Lonzo. Lonzo's all over the court with his spiffy passes. The Lakers are back. The crowd's going wild. It really felt like a moment. <laughs> you was and I electricity put that, in the air that night, no question. Don't you and I put that moment on a pedestal, though? Like, in terms of if, if there was a Hall of Fame induction, that would be the, the first thing to go in on the first ballot. So I don't come at Lonzo... Uh, unnecessarily or or thoughtlessly. But here's the thing. I'm sure everyone's caught up to speed in terms of what's happened. Maybe you can run through the full details. You know, Rick Carlisle's chiming in, this, that, and the other thing. But yes, Lonzo is a rookie. Yes, Lonzo has a very flat affect to him. He's not trying to make headlines. He's just trying to chill. There is a lot of talk around the organization right now about Luke Walton's job status, what does it mean going forward? Uh, you know, is LeVar kind of trying to wedge in between, say, the locker room and the coach, whatever it might be? Lonzo's job here is so simple. It's so easy even for a rookie. All he has to do is say, I ride with Luke Walton. That's all he's got to do. It's a very simple job. And Andrew, he didn't do that. He had the opportunity to do that, and he passed. And what his comments in response to his dad came off like was a guy who's trying to uh, essentially lead a mutiny. Now, I don't think that's what he's trying to do, but that's how he came off. And when he's under this kind of scrutiny, he needs to be better than that. He needs to hold himself to a higher standard. He needs to be better to his coach and to his teammates. And right now, to me, there's a lot of, you know, and we can point the fingers at lots of different people here, but I think first and foremost, we have to point the finger at Lonzo and say, you need to back your coach. You need to do better. Okay. Well, you're right. We do have a lot to work through on this. And you and I have not talked about LeVar Ball very often this year. Not necessarily because we're like sanctimonious about it and think that it's just like wrong (laughs) to talk about LeVar Ball, but it has been kind of played out. But the current situation is legitimately interesting to me. So there are a lot of different angles we need to talk through. First of all, though, What did Lonzo say? Because I didn't see his exact quotes. Well, that's a problem in and of itself. And first of all, I want to give a a nice shout out to the Lakers beat writers, including Bill Orm. He's been all over Uh the story. He's done a really good job. Lonzo did basically a two-minute scrum with the Lakers media after his father's quotes broke. And I guess just for background, his father essentially questioned, are the Lakers playing for Luke Walton. Uh, you know, there's been a nine-game losing streak, uh, you know, before their recent win over Atlanta. Does he still yeah. have the locker room? That's pretty incendiary stuff. And by the way, if you go all the way back to our pre-draft podcast, I told you that could be an issue. I said that was the red line. It was this pretty was clear go- to everybody that that was going to be an issue. Yes, but you kind of waffled and said, oh, it's not going to be that big of a deal if No, no, if no, no. I'm not making says fun of things. you. I'm just saying that, like, Everyone on the planet saw this coming and saw like this exact scenario 
was cl- was clearly going to happen. And if anything, I'm surprised that it took this long for Lavar to kind of go off. Um, but you know, this this is not a surprise and shouldn't be surprising to anyone like within the Lakers organization. What I'm saying, though, is that this was a red line where they have to have a response ready. You can't allow your coach to be undermined like that and have a healthy locker room in the NBA. It's not it's not possible. And I think there were some people, for some reason I have it in my head, you were in this group, that maybe we were going to be able to kind of just laugh LeVar off when he said those kinds of things. And, oh, it's just LeVar being LeVar. Uh, if if that's not how you really felt, you know, my bad. But I think we've reached a point here where it's come to a head, right? So Lonzo is asked by the beat reporters, basically, where do you stand? His main quote was, I'll play for anybody. They followed up again and said, what do you mean you'll play for anybody? Like, how do you feel about Luke? He said, essentially, he's a player. Uh, he's not in charge of picking the coaches. He just took a hands-off approach. He didn't really say anything uh, in any meaningful way to back Luke Walton. Now, on top of that, his teammate Kyle Kuzma came out at practice on Monday uh, and did back Luke Walton, basically said, you know, we're riding for him uh, and we've got his back. I think he, be- I believe he said uh, he thought LeVar's comments were a little bit upsetting. Uh, and then all in all of this, you have the Lakers front office not really making a statement yet, kind of hoping it will blow over a little bit or maybe yeah. not wanting to give credence to what LeVar's doing, right? Lonzo is the weak link here. Oh, and by the way, uh, <laughs> kudos to Luke Walton. You know, I mean, he's he handled it as best he could. He was Luke joking about it well. after his, the win. His joke post game was pretty solid too. Yeah, he basically was pretending that he wasn't giving Lonzo lots of play time because uh, you know, in retribution for what his dad had said. And, and then he he was obviously kidding about that. That's the right way to handle it if you're Luke Walton. I mean, it's a really sticky situation. But Lonzo is the weak link here. He has got to be the one who says, "Look, uh, I." have to know my place on this team. He's a rookie. He's not the best player on the team. He's the most famous player on the team, but he's certainly not been the best performer on the court. He's got a, he owes it to his teammates. He owes it to his coach and he owes it to his organization to get in line, to be aligned. He doesn't have to speak for LeVar. You know, he doesn't have to get LeVar to be quiet. Lonzo needs to speak for Lonzo and he has to do a better job than just saying, Hey, I'll play for anybody. Andrew, imagine if you called me up and said, hey, you know, we're going to do a podcast. And my response was, hey, I'll podcast with anybody. How would you feel? <laughs> imagine if your wonderful wife, imagine if it's your wonderful true. wife came home, kind of cleared uh, the, the dinner table off, you know, your, your Eiffel Tower is there on the dinner table, cluttering things up. She cleared it up and, <laughs> and she asked you, hey, Andrew, uh, are you hungry for some dinner? And your answer was, hey, I'll eat with anybody. I mean, what's she yeah. going to say? Give me, you Absolutely. Can't, you can't play it like that, Lonzo. It's not good enough. You have to come out and But to and be clear, be- though, you're, you're not saying that he's intentionally trying to undermine Luke Walton, right? Absolutely not. I think he is just trying to keep as low of a profile as possible. I think yeah, in I general, think he's just being awkward there. It's not. It's, yeah. This this is not like a Machiavellian move from Lonzo. I think. No. Look, it's been a while. Like for the last month or so, I've taken a lot of shots at you. You've taken all kinds of losses with various takes of yours that are are now in disarray. Uh, specifically. I mean, again, this weekend, the Raptors just beat the shit out of Chris Middleton's Bucks uh, on Friday night. So it's been a rough month for you. And I want to compliment you here, though, because you, you don't, you don't want to go here with me on the Bucks, by the way. <laughs> yeah, we'll get to the Bucks. We'll get to the Bucks. But there have been 
all kinds of LeVar discussions over the last 48 hours, probably too many. I would imagine more than half of our podcast audience like doesn't care about any of this and is sick of it already. But I will say, you have the most coherent take on any of this. Uh, it's the, the, the question that more people should be asking, basically. Um, like, I'll, I'll go through uh, LeVar's quote here first. He says, You can see they're not playing for Luke anymore. Luke doesn't have control of the team no more. They don't want to play for him. That's a good team, but nobody wants to play for him. I can see it. No high fives when they come out of the game. People don't know why they're in the game. He's too young. This is Luke Walton. He's too young. He's not connecting with them anymore. You can look at every player and see he's not connecting with them. So, first of all, that's the wrong criticism of Luke Walton. Like, of, of all the things you can you can ding him for, I don't think that he's ever going to be in a situation where his players don't like him. And so like right off the bat, LaVar just kind of seems suspect there, but the Lonzo element, I mean like basically any other player in the league would be expected to come out and clarify the situation. But it seems like everyone already had their LaVar takes loaded up that they sort of like forgot to ask like, why, why can't Lonzo just, clarify this and and keep it moving and sort of make this simple for everybody it's just really really strange it seems like we've all just accepted that he has no power to change the dynamics with any of this and i like lonzo a lot like especially now that he's shooting well like he's going to be a really fun player on the in the sort of like nba universe over the next five to ten years and uh like i think everybody should be rooting for him to succeed but he's just sort of i want him to grow up here like this is a you you nailed it this is a perfect opportunity for him to do something really really simple and just step forward and be like look i ride with luke walton this is like i don't i'm i'm not my dad and i think that alone would win him all kinds of love around the league yeah, Lonzo's general approach is to be the kid in the back of the classroom who just kind of hides and hopes the teacher doesn't call on him. And I'm not calling him out for that. I don't think that's necessarily a bad way to play this, especially when you look at all the forces around him. He almost doesn't even have to say anything uh, to be as famous as he is and to keep that kind of thing going, right? But in this right. situation, by playing it the way he's played it, it looks like he's taking sides with his dad, right? Because the totally. normal way everyone else would play it is to just stand up for their coach. And even if you didn't necessarily completely believe it, you just say, hey, I'm here for my coach 100%. Uh, you maybe throw in a generic you know, praise about how he's kind of helped mold your game or made, made it easier for you to get ready on the NBA level and you move forward. That is the standard in the NBA. Everybody kind of knows how to play this game. So if Lazo just doesn't want to play that game because he thinks it's, it's inauthentic, uh, I guess I could kind of see where he's coming from, but surely he has some stronger feelings for Luke Walton uh, than he's let on. And when he's just yeah. lets that be an open question, that's on him. That's not on his dad. And there is a difference between saying, hey, I'm triple B's. You know, what LeVar says is what I believe. You know, that is the extreme way he could play it the other direction. Uh, he, there's a difference <laughs> between that and and saying, look, I'm with the Lakers. I'm a Laker. Luke's my coach. I listen to him. I respect him. And going forward, I think he's still going to be my coach, right? I mean, yeah. there's, no, I, I a, wide, right there's now, a wide gap between uh, the possible responses that he could give if he did step forward here. All he's got to do is say, I ride with Luke. He doesn't have to say, uh, "My, you know, I'm 
blossoming out of my dad's influence. I am my own man. He doesn't have to go there. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's too far. He doesn't need to be that weird. He could just say, I like Luke. Well, no, but you're right, though, because right now the implication is either that he agrees with his dad or that he is sort of too weak to disagree with his dad publicly. And either one of those is a bad look for him. So hopefully, I mean, I, I honestly don't expect him to say anything. <laughs> I, I can't think of a single interesting thing Lonzo Ball has said in two years. So I'm sure he's just going to continue on as the kind of silent partner in all of this. But um, hey, Andrew, you know what another bad look is, though? Is what? him saying in that same interview, no, the guys never asked me about it. And then Kyle Kuzma coming out less, less than 24 hours <laughs> later and saying, oh, yeah, LeVar's comments are upsetting. Guess what? He's yeah. going to the media and telling the media that stuff uh, because there is some sort of a communication breakdown. Kuzma's and been feeling himself lately, man. He's really hey, sort I'm of I'm fine like, with it. Yeah, I, I, I like it too. Um, do you think, where are you with LeVar in general? Because that's another side of this. Yeah, so... The people who just say he's not a story are flat wrong, and we've been through that before. I mean, I you saw me chasing him around at Summer League, you know, like a little lap dog. I mean, he's a story. Uh-huh. You, you have to cover it. There's no question about it. Ramona Shelburne did a nice piece today of sort of like looking herself in the mirror, almost a little gut check, like, hey, you know, is this, you know, are we handling this properly? You know, are we making something out of nothing? And the answer is no. This guy is making news. If you go back and look at... 2017 in in terms of the most important developments in the NBA, having an outside broker come through and say he's going to start his own sneaker company, pull his kids out of the NCAA, threaten to make his own um, uh, minor league basketball league, take his kids to Europe and get his, you know, best and oldest son drafted number two by the Lakers was by far one of the biggest stories, no matter how you look at it. He is a character in all of this. You have to cover what he says. So, uh, can I, and can so I disagree with the, you there or at least play devil's advocate? Sure. Because the last time we discussed this, I think was over the summer. We were at Summer League. We had just come come off that, that night of Summer League Nirvana with Lonzo Ball and Le- Le- LeBron James. I think you and I had also been to the Hoover Dam the next morning. So it was kind of a weird podcast. We were both kind of delirious. But I do, I mean, reading Rick Carlisle's comments this week where he talked about how it's just irresponsible for ESPN to give this much attention to LeVar Ball. And Carlisle kind of went a little bit overboard where he talked about you know, the the coaches around the league have been talking and they, they think ESPN should deny it or should be denied access or or like if they're a partner, they won't continue doing this. Like all of that rhetoric to me is a little over the line, but I don't really know how to respond to some of the LeVar coverage because I was talking to like, for, for instance, I was uh, at a game last week and I was talking to an executive, a guy who's like probably 20 years older than me. And honestly, like he said the exact same thing as Carlisle regarding just ESPN sort of like whorishness with uh, LeVar. And I don't really disagree that it's a problem. Like it's it's not a good thing. And it's not to single out ESPN either because Sports Illustrated is guilty of it too. But like... Jeff Goodman was on location in Lithuania, which to me seems ridiculous. I don't think that like ESPN should be sending reporters out to follow the the father of a player. Like and, and Lavar well, is not. Can, as much can of I a, put it? 
point blank. I mean, that's why you're not the head of ESPN content, period, you know, because they should. He's one of the biggest stories in sports right now, whether we like it or not. You don't get to choose your battles on that. Uh, the numbers speak for themselves right down the right down. The, and, and even look over in Lithuania, how many people were at that opening press conference? They got mobbed at the airport. They had dozens of cameras every step there. They're going. It's not just an ESPN thing. So the scapegoating of the media to me uh, by Rick Carlisle, frankly, it was a joke. Um, you know, I have a lot of respect for Rick Carlisle as a coach and also as a coach's representative. He is right. one of the all time greatest grandstanders uh, in world history. I mean, this guy gets up on the very highest of high horses and he bellows. And it's really impressive when he does that on behalf mm-hmm. of his people. Uh, but the only reason why he's making that argument is because of the league partner aspect. And that's not how it works. You know, you, you shouldn't be leaning on your partners to try to influence their coverage. Exactly. Like that, that was the part that was messed up. And, and so from that standpoint, I just thought good for him for standing up for Luke, but we shouldn't have to take anything that he said seriously. ESPN, keep doing your thing. He's a story. And when, once he's not a story, I mean, fame doesn't last forever. Uh, you know, this guy's generating a million clicks now. There's no guarantee two years from now, he's still going to be generating a million clicks. Uh, they will adjust their coverage once he's not a story. Are they making him a bigger story? Absolutely. Is that how the media right. works? Absolutely. Right. I mean, uh, you, your argument is that LeVar is news, but you could make a counter argument to that that says LeVar is only news because ESPN is arguing about him constantly. And it's not just ESPN. It's Fox Sports. SI does shit on LeVar every day. I just think no, it's a little bit news of a cop He's out. captured the public. He's captured okay. the public's attention. Even if we weren't here, if we just never, if we had a no LeVar policy, everyone would still be talking about him. He'd still be on social media. I mean, he would still have his own million followers uh, on every single social network. He would still be a story no matter what he says. And frankly, he needs the media uh, a lot less than the media needs him. I, I guess so. I don't know. I mean, I, that's that's my take is I don't know. But I think that... It's the answer is not necessarily as clear as you're making it out to be as far as LeVar and the media. Like, I understand that there's interest and it's ostensibly newsworthy, but just looking, look at the media right now. Like, it's, it's pretty clear that something isn't always working properly. And that's true in sports. It's true in politics and the standard for what you publish, particularly regarding sort of like radical outliers is changing. And, I don't know. I, I just think it's complicated. Like, I'm not trying to equate LeVar yeah. to the alt-right, but I'm just saying we we may get 20 years down the road, look back at this era of internet and media and think to ourselves, like, oh, shit, we had no idea how to handle any of that. And it was such a mess. And that's, that is sort of how I, how I see LeVar Ball. It's like, we... The answers aren't clear right now, but I feel like we're going to look back 10 years from now or 20 years from now and and be amazed that he was ever given this much attention. All right. Well, I'm, I'm impressed that you can hold the microphone with all that blood on your hands, because when we had this conversation <laughs> an, an hour before we came on the episode, here's three things that we could talk about. I gave you three choices. You said the only one that was in, interesting to you was LeVar Ball and Lonzo Ball. Why was that? If he's not news, if we're screwing this up, why do you (laughs) want to talk to him about him right here on this podcast? No, be real. I I mean, ask look yourself in in the mirror. I'm not in Lithuania asking him about Luke Walton. I'm just saying, ask yourself the same questions that Ramona Shelburne was asking herself in her piece. Is you know, why do you find him interesting? It's because he's famous. That's part of it. I mean, he is 
larger than life at this point. It may not last forever, but right now he's a story. I understand people who uh, want other stories to come up, and I've said this before. I would love to have a podcast where you know it's just nerdy hoops talk, and all we do is break down X's and O's and do that. It's not going to do numbers, Andrew. You know that intuitively you know that you know you know right. deep in your in your soul and in your heart <laughs> that we have to lead with lavar because you care about it and because that's what people are talking about you know that's you get how it you you're know part it's of the a good topic that's how you know it's worthwhile is when, when ben starts talking about my soul um I, the one the one other thing that i would say in my defense because look that's a good point but like i was with deer and fox's dad last summer uh or last may I was with Markel Fultz's mom the the month before, and both of them had takes that I like would have been more newsworthy, I guess, or or, or could have been newsworthy. And but th- I was like, like they're not media trained, and was not going to put them in the story. And I guess as I say that now, I'm realizing like Lavar Ball. <laughs> It's certainly, if nothing else, he's media trained. So I guess that's one reason to include his views. But I don't know. The, the whole thing just doesn't really sit well r- with me. And I think if you're being real, you can't sit there and be like, oh, this is perfectly normal and this is how things should work. I, it's bigger than me. I can't, I can't fix this entire system. Is the system possibly broken from the top down? Yes. Are we in a really screwed up world? If that's your point, it's awful dark and I'll run with it and I'll take that. But let's compare LeVar, how he's conducted himself, even just since his son got drafted to how the average top picks family would conduct themselves. I mean, you know, Brandon Roy's family was around. Damian Lillard's family was around when I was covering um, the Blazers. You know, Blake Griffin's family goes to Clippers games all the time. Do any of them take the kinds of steps that LeVar has taken consistently and predictably over the last two or three months? Have any of them uh, made the story about themselves or have they put their children first? They haven't. I mean, it's a very rare thing. So even if you take out all the other bluster and, you know, all the other big baller brand stuff and all of that, and you just solely focus on his influence on his son as a professional basketball player, he is news because that rarely happens. I mean, you know, it's like, uh, you know, what what do they say? Like dog bites man, that's not news. Man bites dog, that's a story. LeVar biting a coach is a story. You know, that is different. No, look. I get that, but that by the same token, you could have gone to Jaleel Okafor's dad like and, any and number of did. times over the last few years. Yeah, and to me, that's stupid. But I don't know. You're right that it's not going to go away, and you're right that but, Lavar's behavior well, is is news as far as it relates to the Lakers. Right. So the last question then is: This going to get Lonzo traded eventually? Because I've certainly over the I think a month ago I came out and said I think that the Lakers are going to end up trading Lonzo in June. Are you beginning to see that as a realistic possibility? No, I don't think so, in part because I think this kind of stuff decreases his trade value because other teams are like, hey, he's yeah, not maybe. worth it. You know, uh, That is one thing. But to go back to Jaleel, you, know, you called it stupid that people covered what his dad said. I disagree. Again, this is a primary source close to a player who's expect, uh, expressing clear frustration with his son's role and the organization and how the process unfolded and you know why he was there in the first place and everything else. Those are exactly the kinds of sources you know journalists are trained to go after to interview 
uh, and to fill out their stories with, you know, if even if we're talking, taking this away from basketball, if we're putting this into politics or entertainment or any of these other things that people would cover, that is a very, I no, mean, obviously you, they're going to be sort of look, biased. But that's a very important voice to hear from. And that doesn't mean you have to have a camera or a Facebook live TV show following around Jalil Okafor's dad. But if you wanted the pulse of the Sixers during that time period, that's someone you should absolutely be covering. No question. That is a completely fair point the first time. But as it becomes sort of repetitive and like Jaleel Okafor's dad was on Twitter, like taking shots at people. Like, I just think at some point it becomes counterproductive to keep going back to that. Well, and we probably crossed that line with LeVar like 18 months ago. Uh, But anyways, let's move on here. Um, We'll I'm sure return to the Lakers soon, probably on the next episode. But you wanted to talk about the Bucks on Saturday night. So what did you see from, from Bucks Wizards? Or is this no, strictly you wanted no. to include this to gloat about Chris Middleton locking no, down Bradley Beal? It wasn't a gloat situation, and I was going to let it pass until you took some sideswipes <laughs> there earlier on in this podcast for absolutely no reason, which really was a, a an unfortunate mistake by you. So you mentioned that the Bucks took another loss from the Raptors, and that's fine. That did happen, but they did uh-huh. have a really nice road victory over your Washington Wizards, and I'm sure that hurt. So I need you to explain something for me, just in your logic tree, because you were issuing all these apologies on behalf of me. That really did not sit well with me. Never apologize on behalf of the entire podcast ever again. If you okay. want to keep this thing, if you want to keep this thing going, do not do that. So okay, in your mind. Enough. In your mind, DeMar DeRozan is better than Chris Middleton. And then also in your mind, Bradley Beal is better than Kyrie Irving. And you know we saw, and you love these head-to-head comparisons because you're willing to issue a, a <laughs> giant blanket apology off of one game, right? So in that uh-huh. Wizards-Bucks game, I believe the box score told me that both Bradley Beal and Chris Middleton finished with 20 points, five rebounds, one assist. I believe that's accurate. Uh, so basically I think we should consider them equals and because the Bucks won, maybe Middleton's even actually now better than Beal by <laughs> your logic. So according to you, that means Middleton is better than Kyrie Irving and then DeMar DeRozan is also better than Bradley Beal if we're following your logic train. So do you believe those statements? Would you put DeRozan above Beal and is Middleton above Kyrie Irving? No, look, you've now just confused me and you're... You're using my own opinions, so it's it's my fault, but uh, I, this, this web of takes is too much for me to handle. I will say this. DeRozan is firmly better than Chris Middleton, and you just need to let it go. The, the Beal-Kyrie issue... It, that is, that's a that's a passion project of mine. I'm not going to claim that we're all the way there yet, but I do think that at some point we're going to get to a point where Beal is clearly better than Kyrie Irving. I've really enjoyed hearing from the Celtics fans on Twitter over the past week or so since I debuted that opinion. Um, but uh, as far as Chris Middleton Saturday, like the the Bucks were not very good Saturday night, and the Wizards were just too disorganized to really put the game away and uh so I didn't even really notice Chris Middleton I'm not gonna lie to you but Giannis in the fourth quarter was pretty incredible uh it was it was a a good sort of up close night with Giannis Inc because he he was sort of he got like an easy 25 points through the first couple quarters and watching him against the Wizards 
the most impressive part. You you just begin to appreciate how impossible he is to guard because like I I was it was a big game um like four or five in the East and I was looking up and down the Wizards roster like who can possibly stop Giannis and so it was Giannis on Markeith Morris for a little while Giannis on uh Mike Scott and like all these guys were just hopeless Otto Porter was hurt so then by the end of the game the the real like twist of the knife for me was watching the Wizards throw out these like hopeless nobodies against Giannis and like they were completely screwed and then like in crunch time it was a one possession game both teams going back and forth and the the Wizards were like pushing Giannis out to to near the three-point line and they were making him take really tough shots and then he just hit everything like he was hit, he hit like a turnaround from 18 feet on the baseline he hit a pull up from like 20 feet near the top of the key and it it made you appreciate just how scary this can get like a year or two from now if if the jumper becomes halfway dependable he is so clearly going to be the best player in the league you still thinking you're going to the finals How's that going for you? <laughs> Come on, man. I'm trying to shift the topic away from the Wizards, all right? Giannis yeah. was amazing. That's all that matters. We don't need to talk about what's wrong with the Wizards, okay? The, the, there are some issues right now. The one thing I will say, John Wall is not healthy enough to be the number one guy all the time, and Beal is not yet consistent enough to be the number one guy all the time. But then they're also like both too good to just take a back seat. So right now what the Wizards like crunch time offense looks like is they trade off possessions and neither one of them gets in a rhythm because they just they aren't good enough to sc- to like score on command. So it just is really discombobulated right now and it's it's hard to watch. Yeah, I mean, I just really hope that Milwaukee knocks you guys out in the first round. That would be hilarious. Uh, I mean, it's in that happen. game, I, let's, in let's that game the Bucks had the best number one guy, and they had the best number two guy, didn't they? I mean, can't we say oh, that? Uh, there we you go. Know, you said you look, could. You said you couldn't see Middleton. I couldn't really see Bill. I, was he out there too? Look, man, you've had a rough month, uh, and I'm happy for you. You needed to reclaim yeah. some dignity after the DeRozan going back losses. to that one. <laughs> you've earned it. You've earned it. Let's move on here. We've got we've got a couple of Mavs questions. Every I feel like we're probably only going to talk about the Mavericks like twice this season. So here's here's two questions. One, Brian says, I know Mavericks talk is a bit of a bummer, but do you think Rick Carlisle is impeding the Mavericks' future success? And then the second one is from Lewis, who says, I want to start off by saying I'm from the UK and I listen to every episode. And I'm finally attending my first NBA game on Thursday in London. Shout out to Lewis. This is our second listener who's going to be at that game in London. That's awesome. Uh, And then he says, I'm a Dallas fan and I watch every game. I understand we don't get much love on the pod because we're rebuilding. But my questions are, who would you draft in Dallas? And what would your moves be as Dallas's GM moving forward? That question is aimed for Ben, as Andrew's first decision would be to sack Rick Carlisle. Speaking of which, <laughs> I would like a real reason why you wouldn't like to play under him instead of that attempt on the previous pod. Much love, guys. Uh, I really like that he used sack for Rick Carlisle. That's a, it's some 
authentic British diction there. Um, but what do you think? Where, where, what's your take on the state of the Mavs right now? I mean, they're, they're really stuck. Uh, they're in a bad spot. They're hurting. There's no really way around that. I mean, one thing that we have to look at when we look at teams that are kind of in this tankathon race is, are you young or are you bad or are you both, right? And right. Rick Carlisle was sort of trying to play that same card when he was backing uh, up Luke Wallen because he was basically saying, look at the Lakers. They're so young. They're having a hard time. He was really good when he coached that veteran Warriors team. Everybody needs to lay off of them. And then I think he also threw in something along the lines of, you know, I'm going through the same thing here in Dallas. Well, are you really, Rick? I mean, when we look at the players (laughs) who are young on the team, it's Dennis Smith Jr. Do they have another young guy on the entire roster? You know, I mean, Mm -hmm. Nerlens Noel doesn't even really barely play. Uh, You know, guys like Yogi, you know, he's 24. Harrison Barnes, 25. I mean, their main guys are not young, right? And one other thing I'd say comparing these two franchises, the Lakers and the Mavericks, is there was a few years ago when... Uh, Henry Abbott wrote this kind of sensational ESPN, the magazine story uh, in terms of the sensational because of the reaction that it got, essentially saying that guys didn't want to go sign with the Lakers to play with Kobe. Right. And I think a lot of Lakers fans and Kobe fans took that personally. And it's not necessarily as negative as that, but who's going to go sign to play with Dallas while Dirk's there, right? It's not a knock on Kobe. It's not a knock on Dirk, but when your main guy, sort of, you know, the franchise icon, not necessarily the best player at that point of their career, uh, but the guy who everyone's sort of being catered to and has been there forever is on his last legs like that, it makes it significantly more difficult to compete for super high level guys. And in free agency, that's really all that matters, right? There's five guys every year who are really going to change things and turn you into a contender. And if you're Dallas, you're just not in that mix. So you have to overpay guys like Harrison Barnes and Wesley Matthews and try to just sort of limp along like that. So, you know, for Dallas, they're stuck until Dirk retires. Now, assuming Dirk retires, what's the next step? Uh, They need a lot more youth than they've got as, you know, to bring it back to my other point, Dennis Smith Jr. um, Looks Solid putting up good numbers as a rookie hasn't been, you know, a top five rookie of the year guy probably uh, Mm -hmm. this season, Uh, but he's going to need help, you know, going forward. They don't have any other young pieces really around him for him to grow with. And that's where the question with Carlisle comes in is, is he going to stick as history suggests to this approach of like, just give me these mediocre veterans rather than young guys. And let's just, you know, shoot for like a six, seven or eight seed and, and try to be respectable rather than really do an organic rebuild. And I think that's a fair question, but it's not just on Carlisle, you know, the front office and the ownership seems to be pretty aligned on that approach, at least in recent years. Yeah. Um, I think short term, the best thing is tank hard, get yourself a really good pick longer term, uh, expect years of pain. I, I don't see any way around it. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up about Dirk because the whole, not to relitigate that Kobe piece from four years ago, but it it really was kind of melodramatic about like every aspect of the Lakers situation then because they gave him a huge deal, which pissed a lot of people off. But by the same token, like I didn't even think that deal was that unreasonable, uh, at least within context. Like the, the Lakers had just signed... A mass I don't know the exact number. I think it was a couple billion dollars uh, in TV money that was coming in, and that that was possible almost entirely because of the last ten years of Kobe. And so I didn't have a problem with him getting a share of that money. Um, but for whatever reason, because it's Kobe, like a lot of people just get pissed off. And 
Dirk has been sort of in that same mode for a while there, except that he's been taking less money, which is great. That's totally his prerogative, and I'm sure he'll be taken care of uh, when, whenever he retires with like, he'll run like a production company of Mark Cubans or something. But it just always struck me as, as a little bit of a double standard because you're right. Like nobody wants to go play for, for Dirk's team either. Um, and, uh, I appreciate that. The, as far as the, the Mavs situation this year, the Harrison Barnes signing made sense to me at the time. Like it's not a, it's not a horrible value and I'd be interested to see whether they could possibly trade that deal at some point, but like at some point they're going to need to bottom out. So I think the, the, the key for them right now is to just make sure they tank this year. And that's where like Carlisle is legitimately sort of a complicating factor because I, I understand that he's a good coach just for the record. The, the emailer asked for a real reason why I don't, I wouldn't want to play with him. I just, I don't like Carlisle because he strikes me as kind of a bully sometimes. And like Popovich has that in him as well. But Popovich is this like, wildly interesting character off the court carlisle we've never really seen that from him so carlisle just seems like kind of a boring bully uh but at the same and if i were a mavericks fan he would drive me insane because just one of these years they need to get a top five pick and like i think it's it's fair for fans to look at him and say like look do you understand how the league works just please make this easy for everyone and and like play Dennis Smith 40 minutes a game and just lose. Does that make sense? It does. I mean, one thing I'd say, some of this is expectations from the fan base. And our emailer sounded very clear-headed. Like, it didn't sound like he was one of these pie-in-the-sky guys of, like, how how the Mavericks compete for the 2020 title, right? And you're going to probably accuse me of condescension because you love doing that. But, Uh you know, a big part of following this team for the next couple years is just admitting up front that your team doesn't matter. The Mavericks do not matter. They don't have enough talent. They don't have the type of guys exactly. who are going to make you a top four team. So savor the small victories, you know, the little J.J. Berea squirt layups, you know, game <laughs> yeah. winners in games that nobody else is watching. You know, that's your Super Bowl. Uh, you know, be excited that Dwight Powell's got these crazy, you know, on-off splits uh, when he's out there. Some of the second unit guys are right there with him in terms of giving really productive minutes. You know, try to find the little victories because the big victories are not coming. Well, and the other thing that I would add, I don't really feel bad for Mavericks fans because they had like peak Nowitzki for 15 plus years. And I just, if you go back over the last 20 years, I can't think of a cooler franchise player to have rooted for than Dirk, uh, particularly because it, it all paid off with the 2011 title. Like that's just as good as it gets. I, I, it's probably something I will never experience as a Wizards fan. So if I were a Mavs fan, I would just like savor th- that and be grateful that I got to sort of experience Dirk. And I think that's probably how a lot of them have played it uh, over the last few years. But um, but the, yeah, the, the future same time, is going to be kind of like- messy. You're right. At the same time, I, I kind of feel for them because how many times can you go and load up that funny Deshaun Stevenson t-shirt or that picture of Mark Cuban in the <laughs> urinal with the trophy? Like We're that testing gets the limits here. We're testing the limits yeah. of their patience for sure. Um, no. All right. And, that, and, that's, and that just says, that's why you tank. I mean, you, you owe your fan base hope. You know, are you selling yeah. wins or selling hope? Right now, they're selling neither. That's why you got to run this thing into the ground. Okay. Well, speaking of of Dirk's glory days, let's go back to the mid 2000s here. 
Tanner says, after hearing the all 2010s decade team on the last pod, I, I had a question for you guys. Who would your picks be for early 2000s players that would be better off in today's NBA? If I had to pick three, the list would be number one, Tracy McGrady, number two, Dirk Nowitzki, number three, Chris Weber. Which nominations do you have, Ben? Those were good picks by Tanner. There's no question. Um, I would start with uh, a guy maybe a little bit off the radar, Pedro Stojakovic. Ooh, um, he was on my list too, man. He would be a monster today. So he had some insane numbers, but I looked it up. I think the most threes he ever attempted in a game, like on average for a season, was something like seven. Um, uh-huh. You know, a guy like Steph, he's, you know, putting up like 10 a game now. I mean, imagine any, you know, kind of any of the guys in that Peja mold where they're just like unbelievable sharpshooters from that era. If you just yeah. expand their volume, you put them in this pace and space uh lineups where they're getting a lot more clean looks and you basically force feed them three pointers all day long and you say hey in transition you get to pull up every single time we expect you to shoot 10 threes a game their numbers would be out of this world and i think their legacies would be uh even longer lasting so that was that was one that i had who else you got so thinking about this question what it really does is make you appreciate the current era because you can honestly take almost anybody from like that lost those lost years in the early 2000s and say that they would look better in today's game because it's just like spread out everything's kind of easier there's more room for people to breathe and uh it's just it's very cool we're in the golden era right now um and the the Peja Allen Houston Antoine Walker would you would you put Antoine Walker in this category so I had a tricky time with both him and Iverson because I think unfortunately it could cater like this current system could cater to their worst impulses rather than bringing Maybe. the best out of them uh, which I was a little bit nervous about but I do think you're identifying a type which is like the high volume wing shooters once they're playing in a completely comfortable game for them they're not getting pounded and, and grabbed as much and it's free flowing and it's up and down I mean in in shape Antoine Walker would have a very strong case here um just as you know a guy like Peja would um yeah you know with yeah, I, I mean, with Iverson and the guys on the ball though that's another archetype where you know you give him the kind of Kyrie level space to to operate one-on-one rather than go exactly. into the basket and just getting nailed every single time you can make an argument for him also what about like Gilbert Arenas and Baron Davis I mean two guys who put up huge numbers pretty efficient getting to the free throw line three-point shooters in volume again spread everything out just play to their best tendencies I think that's another type of guy who could work really well transitioning from like 2004 to 2018 yeah, I'm with you. I, I think Iverson would have averaged like 35 a game in this era. Baron Davis and Gilbert Arenas were also on my list. Um, and like I, I Tracy McGrady is a is a good pick, but I also think that tr- someone like Tracy McGrady and someone like Rasheed Wallace, like they could have dominated any era they played in. And the reason that they didn't was not necessarily the style. Like T-Mac just kind of never found like the right mix to play with. And Rasheed Wallace was never totally locked in. Um, although obviously with the Pistons, he was phenomenal um, as sort of like a, a role player. But, uh, but I think both of those guys don't totally fit with this conversation. I was trying to think of players who would have been worse. And the one guy I came up with was... Uh, for me, when I think of the mid 2000s and how dark things got, I, th- I th- 
think back to like those games on the Pistons where Jerry Stackhouse was like the only scorer they had and he would take like 25 shots and and he'd shoot like 35%. So I think someone like Jerry Stackhouse his game might not have been as as nice a fit today. Like I think he didn't really shoot threes, wasn't like crazy athletic by midway through his career. Obviously he was awesome at uh UNC. But he he's a guy who I think would would probably suffer in the new era. Yeah, one guy who kind of goes along with your same point about would work in any era. But the one guy who I would want to drop in our current era, if I could have anyone from that 2000 to 2004 mix is Shaq. Yeah. I mean, there's no question because does he change the entire style by himself? You know, do all of the best teams have to essentially have a Shaq proof strategy, you know, or or can, can the Warriors play like they want and then just have a totally different look for when, uh, Shaq's coming along Would all these guys like the Roy Hibberts of the world, like, would they still be kicking around just based solely on the idea that they could foul Shaq six times? I think there's a chance. And I think, you know, flipping that around, like how much credit do we give a guy like Shaq for keeping the style of play the way it was at that point, uh, versus having some of these trends, like the the D'Antoni ball trends come along a little bit sooner. Uh, I think it's a fair question, and it's probably something that, you know, Shaq probably doesn't get total credit for that. Uh, it seems like people always look at Mike. They're they're really circling Steph Curry, uh, you know, a few other guys along the way in terms of who's really defining how the game is being played. Uh, I think Shaq probably gets short shrift on that conversation. I mean, at his peak levels during that time period, uh, he was the central force, and everybody around the league was trying to figure out, okay, what do we do with this guy? Yeah. Um, the, the other thing that I wonder about is like early, early in his career, Shaq was not skinny, but I mean, he was not what he became. Like he, he became kind of round as, as the years went by, but I wonder whether he would have stayed skinny if he came into the league like today and, and what that would have looked like, because by the end of his career, even by the end of his Lakers run, like he was just so massive that you, it was harder to appreciate how like crazy athletic he was and crazy graceful. Um, and maybe he would, he would have been sort of more mobile his entire career. If he came up today, another guy yeah. just shot no, the a, big shout out vegan. To, what's the that? big vegan is the big <laughs> yeah. vegan is what we needed. You know, we, and I think all of his coaches, by the way, are probably sitting here as you're talking, kind of rolling your eyes at this idea that he ever could have completely stayed in shape. Cause I'm sure they were preaching the same thing throughout <laughs> his career too. But like, if we could take '93 Shaq and put him in the modern NBA, that's oh my what goodness. I'm saying. That would be fucking fascinating. But um, who knows? Anyway, maybe there'll be another Shaq that comes along here. Uh, all right, next question here from Zachary. He says, "Jimmy Butler is an El Camino. It's a car and a truck, but it fulfills neither purpose well. It's only bought by those suffering under the delusions that its versatility makes it better than a dedicated muscle car or pickup truck." Butler is a mediocre player who seems to think yelling about how hard he works and how serious he is makes him elite. He's not bad, but he definitely can't be a number one on any legitimate contender. He's good at everything, but great at nothing. Uh, I included that email just because that's really solid hate. It's a very good takedown of Jimmy Butler, who as a player, I think both of us really like. But if you're going to criticize him, that's the perfect way to criticize him. He's, he's good at everything, but he's not great at anything. And he sort of like sucks up the energy from the people around him and makes it difficult for them to thrive. 
So if that's true, explain to me how Minnesota has basically the biggest year-over-year turnaround of any team in the league without really changing any of their other parts. How'd that happen? Because he's awesome. But do you think that makes Minnesota elite? I mean, Jimmy Butler is really good and definitely good enough to carry you to the middle of either conference, uh, particularly if he has like a decent amount of help around him. Yeah, I just, I think sometimes like the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. When you have somebody who is really good across the board at everything, that can make him a great player in terms of his impact. I think all the impact stats would suggest he's a great player. Um, So I don't know. To me, this sounds like somebody who's got a bone to pick. Um, Okay. But, Fair enough. <laughs> I mean, certainly, like, he's still got a lot to prove. I mean, and it, it goes to the question of, like, what are they going to do when they get to the playoffs? Like, how much do you fear uh, a Jimmy-led Minnesota team versus a Russ-led Thunder team? And I think most people would say, well, I fear the Thunder more because we've seen Russ and a guy like Paul George uh, have uh, more demonstrated postseason success. But uh, to me, Minnesota's list of problems is pretty long and butler is not on it i mean i think he's he's the solution yeah he's definitely been the 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 only real solution that they've had uh thus far all right next question from sven he says long time listener first time emailer as a german basketball fan i have the german players on my watch list dirk and kleber in dallas shout out to our guy maxi uh paul zipster in chicago Daniel Theus in Boston, and Schroeder in Atlanta. Without any doubt, Schroeder is currently the best player of the five Germans in the NBA. Here's my question. Is he a franchise point guard who will be part of the Hawks after the rebuild, or is he just a transition player slash trade chip? Um, Now, just to preface this, the only reason I included this question is because one of my favorite things that you have ever said to me (laughs) In our, in our two years together, is that Dennis Schroeder is German for Brandon Knight. So that is, that's how we'll frame the conversation. Is he still Brandon Knight? Um, he's kind of peak Brandon Knight, like what people thought Brandon <laughs> Knight was before his life fell apart. Uh-huh. Um, again, when we're looking at like zooming out to the Hawks conversation in general, with Schroeder kind of as sort of their leading light at this point, you know, again, are they young? Are they bad? Or are they both? And to me, they're kind of just bad. They're not really that young. I mean, they've got John Collins, you know, Bembry, Torian Prince looks like a keeper for sure. And then Schroeder as your franchise guy is really, really, really rough. I mean, there's no way around it. You know, he's average point guard kind of in that middle tier at best. He's got the greenest possible light down there and it's not watchable. It's not fun. And his numbers haven't been, you know, that impressive. Nothing to suggest, okay, hey, uh, you know, he hasn't this is been really that bad though this year. He like he's, oh, he's been, been fine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I I don't know if he's someone you'd ever want to build around. I think if that's what he's asking, the answer is probably no. Uh, but I, I just what I'm saying is like when you when you clear the decks for Westbrook in Oklahoma City last year, and you're like, dude, you can do whatever you want. He re, he replies with a 30 point triple double. When you clear the decks for Dennis Schroeder, and it's like, hey, you can do whatever you want. <laughs> He showed up and got into a late night altercation that required the cops to be called before the season even started, got himself suspended. And now basically, you know, he's averaging, uh, you know, 20 and six, like congratulations. You know, you're not going anywhere if you have a complete green light and that's the best your point guard can do, you know, and the whole thing is built around him. And he's not, he's not really a shooter. Uh, you know, I don't view him as like an elite defensive player at his position. You know, he's fine. So long story short, your, your best talent is not that impressive. 
the rest of your roster is in a lot of cases old and not that impressive and your prospects in terms of okay who's really going to blow up and be a franchise player i mean that's asking way too much of prince and you know you and i like collins but i don't think anyone really sees that in collins's future either so to me they're firmly in this category of tank as hard as possible draft best player available i think it's pretty simple yeah the flip side though i like i think that they're in a much better spot than dallas because Atlanta actually has pieces that will be really useful as supporting guys. Like they just need the guy to build around, but they've got players who like Torian Prince could be a solid fifth starter. John Collins could be a dependable starting power forward or whatever. Like, I I don't know if Schroeder is in that category. (laughs) So like I I probably wouldn't bet on it, but, um, but they do. They are gonna if if they could successfully land in like the top three, they will have a brighter future almost immediately. Whereas I think the Mavs, it's a little bit murkier because of the age of of guys in, on that team. Yeah, and I think if we've learned anything from like the last five six years of the Hawks, and obviously they have a new you know front office, but every player is in transition. You know, that's just a, a franchise that's in perpetual transition. Look how many guys they've gone through. Josh Smith. Joe Johnson, uh, you know, Al Horford, Paul Millsap, Jeff Teague, Kyle Korver, the list goes on and on and on. I mean, that's not really at this point a destination. So they have a lot of work to do in my eyes on their culture, on sort of, you know, resetting everything in terms of, you know, is this a place that people want to play? How do you get guys to go there? Uh, It's going to be a steep climb for them. Yeah. Um, All right. Well, let's move on to the end here. So a couple weeks ago we mentioned offhand on the podcast that we wanted like uh comparisons to extinct animals for extinct archetypes of nba players and oh yeah two- no, it's because we were talking about rondo right i mean it, the whole idea was like okay rondo doesn't really work in 2018 so which kind of animals that you know dodo bird or whatever it might be are kind of like the rondo of the biological world Right. And it was a completely throwaway comment from us. And uh, two listeners responded with very solid, robust emails here. So the first one is from Jonas, who says, just to get it out of the way, the pre-shot clock dinosaurs, George Markin, Dolph Shays, etc. These guys are clear analogs to the literal dinosaurs. They are giant, slow-moving behemoths like the Brontosaurus, who once ruled over the world until a meteor, in this case the shot clock, changed the landscape forever. The second one is the seven foot five inch gentle giants, Minute Bowl, Georgie Murison, Sean Bradley. The obvious comp would be giraffids, Mocene, Miocene ancestors of our modern day giraffes. They were tall, spindly, goofy looking and didn't do much other than stand around and try not to get hurt. So I read that and was like, why didn't he just pick giraffes? And then I realized that giraffes are not extinct. So they are not eligible for this conversation. Um, Well, I read that. And so I immediately Googled giraffids. And if anyone's going to take anything away from this segment, which could probably (laughs) run for another five minutes, I just want to highlight this. Google giraffids. It's G-I-R-A-F-F-I-D-S. You will not be disappointed. Okay, great. I I look forward to it. Um, 
So the next one is The Enforcers. Maurice Lucas, Charles Oakley, Bill Lambier. These were some of my favorite players, uh, particularly Oakley towards the end because he really had no discernible skill other than scaring the shit out of people. Um, He says they were violent and powerful and thrived because of it, but they pushed past the boundaries of their natural environment and it caused a retaliation that resulted in their demise. (laughs) <laughs> Sounds like the Tasmanian tiger, the largest carnivorous marsupial of the modern era, and an apex predator who became extinct in the 1930s due to excessive hunting by farmers who blamed it for killing sheep and poultry. Oh, man. So the sheep uh, eating, eating sheep backfired for the old Tasmanian tiger. That's a really solid one. And then he, he also threw in big, slow white guys. 90s centers like Will Purdue, Greg Ostertag, and Chris Dudley, guys whose main talent was simply being big and taking up space. These people are obviously the giant sloth. So those are, those solid. are really inspired, very inspired choices. I mean, golf clap for Jonas. That was great work. Um, it also reminded me of how many animals we nearly slaughtered uh, before we had national parks. So I, you know, that's just kind of a side tangent for me and my <laughs> national parks homies. But those protected lands really helped protect a lot of uh, you know different animal uh, species out there. I'm glad we did it. Yeah, the Tasmanian tiger was awesome for uh, for Oakley and Lambier. Uh, and then continuing on here. From Colin, he says, the 1940s-style, unathletic 6'7 guy who plays with his back to the basket is like the early-lobed finned fishes. Not actually that good and was only able to survive in the first place because nothing else existed to outcompete it. Uh, that I don't know what the hell an early-lobed finned fish is, but um, I'm, I'm with it. <laughs> I also am not no. super familiar with 1940s-style six seven guys but sure i think at this point of the email it should already be clear that we're out of our iq zone i mean colin brought some (laughs) absolute (laughs) some absolute heat and i mentioned when i was calling for these i was like you know i wasn't great in the science category so you guys need to really you know bring the background colin didn't have only great comparisons which he did have but he also had incredible descriptions of who these things are. So keep going. Everyone, pay attention to these. Colin is educating <laughs> us on some some subject matter that Andrew and I are not very well versed in. Yes, pay attention. But also, just for the record, I'm, I'm mostly reading this because I'm proud that we've created a forum where people write in <laughs> yeah. comparing extinct basketball players to obscure extinct animals. Uh Colin continues to say, Bob Cousy is the ancestral invertebrate that first aggregated its neurons into ganglia. <laughs> As opposed- <laughs> We are really dumb. Uh, so um, <laughs> congrats to Colin for being much smarter than us. Um, this innovation was critical to the evolution of the centralized mammalian brain, but today is a pretty primitive trait. In that same way, Bob Cousy's behind-the-back dribbling revolutionized the game, but isn't very impressive today. I like it. Absolutely. Bob Cousy, in his time, was a, was a trailblazer. Uh, no question about it. Now, pretty boring. Um, then he continues, this, the Horace Grant-style power forward who rebounds on the defensive end and stays out of the way on offense. This is the panda bear. This style of play is really dumb and completely wastes one of the five players on the court 
and only existed because of the softer environmental conditions of the NBA in that time. In the same in the same way, the panda bear has to be the dumbest animal that ever managed to evolve. It is very slow to reproduce, and its only food is is bamboo, an incredibly energy poor for food source. It should come as no surprise that pandas are going extinct. This one well, made me just sad. Say- well, I was going to say this one made me really happy because I thought the Jimmy Butler hate was going to be the harshest thing that we heard on the podcast this week. But no, this uh-huh. guy's going hardcore at pandas, just rips them apart. And you can't really mount a counter defense. What are you going to say? They're cute. I mean, he's got a great point. The food that they yeah. eat makes no sense. And they're probably not the most intelligent creatures. I mean, although now that you do mention it, he's a little sad because they're probably going to die off. It seems inevitable based on and the way pandas that he are presented great. First this. of all, Pandas are great, and if if there were a five on five game, it like with animals, pandas would be the fat ass power forward that doesn't really do much. And so, and I like those types of players. Okay, I li- I like like yeah. Lonnie Baxter at Maryland back in the day, Sean May at UNC. I've always had a, a soft spot for those undersized fours. Yeah, there's no question that the panda would be overrated by casual fans who love the hustle. You know, I <laughs> love like the distinct color pattern, whatever else you're going to wrap your mind around. Yeah. Yeah. Well, all right. So then we continue on to the Houston Rockets who Colin says are like the most recent radiation of herbivorous teleost fishes. Herbivory is actually a relatively recent trait in fishes. And as herbivorous fishes have evolved, they have developed increasingly larger intestines to more efficiently digest the food they consume. In some of the more recent fishes, this intestinal expansion has gone to an extreme, and virtually the entire inside of the fish is intestine. I can think of no better metaphor for the Houston Rockets, who have taken things to an extreme in the pursuit of greater efficiency." Now, Ben, that was my favorite one. I'm kind of speechless because it's just perfect. Yeah. I don't think you can ever watch them the same ever again. You're just going to see a fish with like 95% of the court when you watch the game covered with fish intestine. And, you know, James Harden is obviously the head of the fish here. Uh, (laughs) I have spent, you know, I have spent probably, I would say, 100 hours of my life thinking about how to kind of convince you to like the Rockets. And I think Colin did better in one paragraph and two sentences than I ever could. Now, he did better explaining it. I don't know if he's convinced you necessarily to wrap your mind around how great the Rockets can be. But if Colin and I together can't do it, then you're just hopeless. So he hasn't convinced me to enjoy the Rockets, but I... I am absolutely, if I ever get a chance to like sit down with Daryl Morey for 10 minutes, there's no question I'm bringing up herbivorous teleost fishes, and uh, we're going to talk about some fish intestines. But the final one that he threw out is, he said, finally, the modern big man is the Darwin's finch, whose evolution has been tracked in real time over the past few decades. These finches show cyclic changes in in beak size, which are induced by changes in rainfall. During drought conditions, the seeds that these birds eat develop thick shells, which can only be broken by finches with big beaks. And thus, after a year of drought, the average beak size will increase. However, in a normal year, the finches with smaller beaks can still get plenty of food, and their smaller beaks make them more energy efficient to boot, so they outcompete the bigger counterparts. 
In the same way, traditional big men are having a hard time staying on the floor in today's NBA, but if a few more dominant post-up bigs can make their way back into the league, then traditional big men will see a renaissance. That's actually a, a pretty solid observation there. The key lesson from, from the Darwin Finches is that one phenotype is not inherently better than the other, and there is no evolutionary endpoint that can be achieved. Instead, as the NBA ecosystem changes, certain big men phenotypes will temp- temporarily enjoy greater success. That got really deep and uh, is, again, like very solid insight. Like you, 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 We were talking about if Shaq came into the league today, who knows what teams would, would do to adjust. So yeah, shout out to there's Colin. There's no question. Colin knows more about science than us, and he knows more about <laughs> basketball than us. And if you guys want to hear more from Colin, go ahead and email us at openfloormail at gmail.com, five-star reviews uh, on Apple Podcasts. If you guys happen to know any, if you've mastered some subject that we don't know and you've got comparisons to the NBA, just like Colin and Jonas dropped on us, we'd love to hear them. It's endlessly fascinating to Can't me. I love that they come we're in. We're do another like, live read of, of 2,000 <laughs> word emails, but uh, definitely into it. Unquestion- like, I, I was fascinated by both of those emails. Yeah, fascinated, humbled, everything above. The Open Floor Globe never disappoints. Guys, five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. Don't forget, openfloormail at gmail.com for all your questions, concerns, Lonzo, LeVar takes, what's going to happen here for All-Star. We'd love to hear people's All-Star picks. You know, that's coming up right around the corner. Uh, If you have got dunk contest submissions, people who you think should be in, let us know. Hey, Andrew, until later this week, I'll talk to you. All right, man. I'll talk to you soon. Another great edition of Open Floor is in the books. Did you know Locked On has a daily podcast for all 30 NBA teams? If you're a Lakers fan, search Locked On Lakers. A Celtics fan, search Locked On Celtics. Warriors fans, search Locked On Warriors. Yes, all 30 NBA teams have a daily bite-sized podcast on the Locked On Podcast Network. Search on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts for Locked On, your favorite team. Or tell your smart speaker to play podcasts Locked On, your favorite team. It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.